Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name's Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it's really been like to be in the police in Britain for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview some people who also did some really interesting things in policing. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, and there may be some swearing, so probably best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything that I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for policing, but I know that some people won't agree with everything they hear or read, and that's fine. All I ask is that you listen with an open mind And if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing in Britain is all about, and perhaps have a little more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, Ian here. Uh, This week I'm going to be interviewing Danny Shaw. Now Danny Shaw is a big name in journalism and policing. Danny was the BBC Home Affairs correspondent for, I believe, uh, about 20 years and reported on policing and the criminal justice system over a very long period of time, and I believe across a large number of Home Secretaries and Prime Ministers for both the Labour government during the 1990s as well as the Conservative administrations under David Cameron, uh, Theresa May and now laterally Boris Johnson. So as you know from listening to anything that I've said so far as well as reading anything that I've written and put on my website that I've got a a bit of a diner on the way that policing has been treated by journalism generally over a long period of time but obviously I just need to make it clear that you know there's lots of journalists out there who who, who do uh, report things in a very fair balanced way and I would definitely put Danny into that category. I'm going to find it really fascinating to hear his thoughts on where policing currently is, where it's come from and where it might be going to in the future. But before we start the interview I just want to give you a bit of a flavour of where I think I'm probably going to be going a bit more with the podcast as it develops. Um, it's interesting looking at the statistics uh, of the episodes that get sort of listened to more and downloaded more uh, and it, I think it's fair to say that the ones that are really popular tend to be those that feature uh, individuals who are or have been police officers talking about their particular areas of expertise. So uh, not wanting to you know, be a complete slave to statistics, I do think it's probably worth spending more time speaking to police officers and, and then only bringing in non-police officers when there's a particular reason to do so. So I think Danny definitely falls into that category, but we'll see as we go on. So in the future, uh, I'm going to probably focus more on officers past or present uh, who have got something to say about policing, their experience of policing or the particular areas of expertise, because there's so many different parts to policing and that's something that you know when you talk about the police really it doesn't really say very much saying the police it's a bit like saying the national health service doesn't it 
in the police, we've got so many different disciplines. So I want to get on people who can talk about uh, investigating things like serious sexual offences against children. I want to get on people who talk about maybe uh, air operations, helicopters and drones and things like that. I want to get on people to talk about uh, the dog section, how we use dogs. You might find it interesting to hear about how we deal with kidnaps, uh, ransoms, extortion, uh, these types of things that uh, go on all the time but tend not to uh, generate very much publicity because of the nature of dealing with the type of people who get involved in these, which is, tends to be serious criminals falling out, uh, kidnapping one another, trying to extort money uh, using menaces, physical violence and all of that kind of stuff. I also want to get on someone to talk about murder investigations, you know, how the police investigate very high-profile murders involving some very dangerous people, you know, one or two very experienced senior investigating officers who have many years of experience of these types of high-profile investigations. It's probably also worth pointing out that initially in the first few episodes of the podcast, when I was kind of feeling my way into it, I was talking about uh, reading from the book. I think for commercial reasons, the publisher wouldn't be fantastically happy with me doing that. So it's probably better that we focus on trying to help you understand what it's actually like to be in the police and some of the issues and uh, the good, the bad and the uh, sometimes ugly. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Dan Shaw. Danny, thank you ever so much for joining me on the Tango Juliet Foxtrot uh, podcast. Delighted to have you here. Really good for you to give up your time, uh, particularly as it's a Saturday. So, so yeah. So, um, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself briefly? Ian, it's a pleasure to to be here um, and to be taking part in the podcast. So, um, I was at the BBC for thirty one years, and I left last October. And for about two decades. Uh, I was covering home affairs for the BBC, um, initially at Radio 5 Live and then more broadly right across radio, television and, and BBC Online. Um, and um, after I left, um, I had a bit of time just sort of freelancing, uh, but over the past five or six months, I've been working for Crest Advisory, which is a, a criminal justice consultancy, uh, which does uh, consultancy work for a number of different agencies, police and crime commissioners, criminal justice bodies, police forces, uh, and also independent research, and also provides communication support, uh, particularly to public inquiries. Brilliant. So, um, so I think the, the the key thing for me, really, the reason why I wanted to speak to you um, was that you've got in my view, probably an unparalleled um, longevity of exposure and access to policing over a very, very long period of time. So um, I believe, uh, what's the number of Home Secretaries that you kind of reported on over that period of time? Something ridiculous. Isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, probably going back to, to Jack Straw. So Straw, Blunkett, Clark, Reed. Smith, Johnson, um, and then the Conservative Home Secretaries, Theresa May, Amber Rudd, Sajid Javid, 
and uh, of course uh, now we have pretty patel so I, th I think it's about 10 wow. i might have miscounted slightly wow. so but those are the ones who i've i've met and interviewed um and directly reported on brilliant so so there's kind of two reasons why i wanted to speak to you um one is the that fact that you've just sort of elaborated the fact that you've got a sort of a fairly unique uh sort of oversight over, over over policing and justice during that period of time from a journalistic point of view. And the second point of view is the fact that you are a journalist by profession, because, um, you know, I, I don't want to sort of ask any leading questions in, in this, because uh, I think you're, uh, you know, as we would say in the police, big enough and ugly enough to have to know your own mind on all of these things. So I don't think there's anything that I'm going to say that's going to sort of, you know, steer you one way or the other. But what I'm really interested in is understanding your perspective as a journalist on, on, in terms of uh, what you've seen. So, so as you know, as I've explained, uh, I've written a book, which will be published later on uh, this year by Biteback Publishing. Um, and it's all about how policing changed over the 30 years that I was, in, I was involved in it uh, to the point where I, where I retired in 2019. And, and that book sort of started life effectively as a, a kind of a memoir really for my kids, I suppose, uh, just to explain the things that I did over those years and how things changed. And then as, it, as I kind of got really got into it, I realized there was a lot more to this than, than writing just a memoir, that there was, there was kind of, it turned into a bit of a cathartic process of trying to make sense of what had happened to policing during that period of time. So um, I'm really interested in your take on the way that policing has changed in the period of time that you've been reporting? I know that's a, it's a massive question, isn't it? But what, what are your kind of, what are the key things that kind of jump out at you in terms of how does, how has British policing changed for good or for ill during that period? Well, I mean, in terms of British policing, um, the structure hasn't changed very much. Uh, you still in England and Wales, and that's predominantly, you know, the area that I've covered, you still have the 43 forces, you still have a sort of overarching organised crime agency. It used to be, I think, when I started, literally my first week, I think, covering home affairs, the National Crime Squad was set up and that then became a serious organised crime agency and sort of then merged into a sort of new national uh, crime agency, the NCA. So you've still got that above it all. You've still got sort of regional crime units. Um, the counter-terrorism structure has altered considerably. I mean, it's not just sort of special branch now, the regional counter-terrorism units, a lot of funding, money, resource has gone into that. And it appears to be much more, certainly organisationally, a much clearer uh, system that's much, works very closely with um, the security service. I mean, that, that I think has changed a lot and the threats clearly that they're dealing with have changed a lot. When I started, it was, you know, the real IRA. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so that's that. In terms of the culture of the police, I mean, there clearly at the moment is a real push. Um, I mean, there was, you know, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s uh, for better diversity, greater representation. But I think there is a real sense now about why that matters so much more. I think it's, mm. it's a lot clearer about why that matters perhaps than it did back then. I think in terms of the way investigation 
investigations are carried out, you can see a much more professional approach. Um, if you think about how murder investigations are conducted now compared to uh, in the 90s, um, you know, it, it, there's a more standardized approach. Uh, I get the feeling that it's much more professional and much more carefully thought out. Um, but I still think uh, that um, in terms of uh, policing, I still think there's a bit of a sort of a hit and miss approach to the sort of bread and butter crimes. Mm. Um, that's the impression I get. Um, there are some, you know, obviously some good practice and some hard work that goes in, but it's still, you know, our police have really adapted to the changing nature of crimes in terms of going online, going, you know, into fraud. Have they really moved on from that? Or are they still sort of stuck sort of tackling crimes on the street, burglaries and robberies? Mm. Um, so that's, I mean, the 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 sort of the figures in policing have changed. You know, the, the key people have obviously moved on from, um, 20, 25 years ago. Um, but in many ways, it still remains a very hierarchical system. Uh, mm. And it remains a system with each force still having, you know, great control over what they do, still mm. battling with the centre uh, to some degree to um, for autonomy. Obviously, you have police and crime commissioners now, you used to have police authorities before, uh, but PCCs haven't really cut through um to the you know to sort of mainstream mm. uh public uh, you know in any great way i think locally there's you know more recognition i'm not sure nationally there is so um you know it's difficult to sum up in you know to sum up in one word um but and and we haven't had a police conference for about 18 months or so and we haven't had a police federation conference since 2018 but I, I remember going to the conference in 2018 I went to the conference in 1998 and it's still dominated by white men you know in their 40s and 50s mm -hmm. um, and you know there were not that many black or Asian uh, officers at, at that conference and you know too few women really representatives as well um, now, whether that's changed in the past few years, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my sense is that the, the, the police service is certainly different from what it was, but it probably hasn't moved quickly enough. Right. OK. So there's obviously a lot in there to reflect on. I think um, one of the key sort of observations that I had working in the organisation for a very long period of time, uh, and particularly seeing... Uh, this developing over the, the last sort of 10 years of that, I suppose. I'm, I'm being brutally honest, uh, as a result of the very sort of deep cuts to resources and losing sort of 20,000 officers, 23,000 members of police staff, and many, many hundreds of police stations closed. The, the effective dismantlement of neighborhood policing in large parts of the country, which is such a key, was such a key problem solving and preventative you know suite of capabilities that a neighborhood policing team could bring to solving local problems so you had all of that uh, and then uh, simultaneously you also had a sense of I wouldn't say mission creep it's way more than mission creep uh, it, it is a, a sort of a sense that the police organization nationally kind of lost its way a little bit in terms of what is the core mission of policing so 
what what are your thoughts around that? Do you do you think that the police understand their role in British society now? And, and for that matter, do you think British citizens fully understand what the police are now there to do? Well, I mean, when you talk about the police, uh, you're clearly you're talking about two hundred and fifteen thousand police officers, community support officers, and, and civilian staff. So. Mm you know, at various different levels from the special constable or the trainee police officer or the, you know, member of staff doing some junior roles right up to chief constables and the Met commissioner. So clearly, I mean, it goes without saying that those, you know, more senior levels of the organisation will probably have a, a perhaps a greater sense um, of what the mission is, um, perhaps than those you know, who are perhaps less connected. Um, but I think, I, I think there's been some confusion about this, um, particularly when Theresa May came in in 2010 as Home Secretary and said, your mission, your number one mission is to cut crime. You are crime fighters. And that represented a, an attempt to try and simplify the role of the police and to sort of tr sort of try and take a more laissez-faire approach from the centre and say, that's your role, that's the mission I'm setting you, right? You go out now in your local forces and decide how you're going to do that. We're not going to set loads of central targets as, as Labour had done. That's your number one mission. I want you to focus on that. I think that's really what she was saying. It was interpreted as uh, by police officers um, as being, well, if that's all we've got to do, then that doesn't represent what we really do as police. That doesn't, that doesn't go to all the missing persons reports that we have to follow up, all the accidents that we have to attend to, all the uh, help that we have to give to other agencies and so on um, in various situations that isn't about solving crime, but is just part and parcel of a police officer's daily work, all the mental health uh, support that, that we have to give, etc. And I, I think that did lead eventually to a much better understanding because the police had to articulate what they really do. It led to a better understanding of what their role really consists of because the police actually had to say, this is the reality of what we do. And they, and, and they did various measurements, didn't they, of how much time was spent on, on these various activities to show actually the amount of time that was spent actually investigating crime was, was you know, pretty small. Um, so I think there's overall a better sense that, you know, they're not just a crime fighting organisation, there's so much more to it and it's a complex job. Whether everyone gets that in the police service, I don't know, because people are sometimes very focused on what they are doing and perhaps don't have the, the bigger picture of, mm. of what, what other people in the service are doing. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I, I suppose one of the key benchmarks uh, of, if, if you want to go right back to the very first principles of policing, you know, um, to uh, prevent prevent crime and disorder, you know, and, and bringing offenders to justice and, and those kind of very basic kind of Pelian kind of principles, you know, you look at you look at the resolution rate at magistrates courts and crime courts now for for crime, it's dropped, it's been steadily dropping, hasn't it, for the last number of years, and it's now sitting somewhere around the seven percent of total recorded crime and so I don't really want to get into the whole 
thing about how we record crime because that is a, such a massive subject in itself isn't it um you know that whether we go on home office recorded crime whether we go on the crime survey of england and wales and then there's larry sherman sort of his kind of harm index and all of this kind of stuff but but by any measurement i think it's fair to say that the british public are now receiving less satisfaction for want of a better word uh, in the criminal court. And I'm just curious as to what you think about that. Why? What are the factors that you see as contributing to that steady reduction in criminal justice outcomes? I think, if I'm being really honest, I think it's principally due to um, a reduction of resources between 2010 and around 2017, 2018, when I think the resources started to edge up a little bit. Um, and that has affected the Crown Prosecution Service very heavily and police forces very heavily um, and other agencies as well in, in local government support agencies and so on have, have you know, suffered from, from budget cuts. Now that's not the only reason but when you lose over 20,000 police officers and thousands of police staff and, you know, Crown prosecutors and, and prosecution lawyers are also in shorter supply, it has an impact mm. on how long you can investigate uh, uh, crimes. So crimes take longer to investigate. And also you have to be more selective about which crimes you can investigate, where you devote your resources and so on. And that has undoubtedly had an, had an impact. Um, at the same time, some types of crime have undoubtedly got more complicated to, to investigate because of um, uh, technology, uh, the use of social media and different devices and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't affect every single crime that's investigated, but it, it affects a great number. Plus, I think the mix of crimes that police have recorded has changed. Um, we know that there was an explosion in the number of sexual offences reported to police from around 2012, the Savile effect, Utrecht effect and so on. Um, and those are crimes which have been, you know, much more difficult to investigate, take longer to resolve. Uh, many of them aren't resolved. So I think those are the, are the key factors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think some of the some of the problems was sort of masked initially because um, uh, the number of crimes sort of went down um, initially in the first three four years of the um, of the austerity program uh, before starting to edge up in sort of 2014 15. I think if you throw into that um, some evidence around uh, illegal drugs um, coming on the market. Uh, which has sort of fueled certain violence between drug gangs uh, and, and grooming of youngsters, county lines and so on from around 2014, 2015 onwards. That again has um, led to an increase in number of offences and those offences which can be very difficult to investigate. So I think there's a number of factors playing into that mix, um, which is why uh, the outcome level, the, the number of offences that are charged has fallen, the number of offences that are cautioned uh, has fallen as a proportion of the total. So, so I know that you you wrote an article in Police Insights, didn't you? Which uh, you, you you very doggedly pursued the Home Office to try and get hold of this uh, 
I believe it was a PowerPoint presentation, wasn't it, that had been leaked, originally leaked to The Guardian, where a Home Office analyst had had uh, concluded that there was a direct link between an increase in serious violence and a reduction in police resources. And they sort of twisted and turned, didn't they? It's quite a long story, isn't it? But they twisted and turned, uh, taking it through the courts and information commission and all sorts of tactics to try and stop you from getting that that uh, document and finally I believe uh, was it the information commissioner or was it through the courts that they finally uh, relented? They finally caved in I think um, and they released the document with a couple of very minor redactions eventually. Um, I mean it was a long battle uh, but the significance of it was was that here we had a document produced by the Home Office by its own research team which which said that there was a causal link between uh, falling resources uh, for the police um, and an increase in, in some types of violent crime. And, you know, so, you know, for years and years and years, the government had denied it and said it's not, it's not having an impact, uh, crime's falling. And then when crime started rising, they said there's no evidence that it's having an effect. And they just denied it and denied it and denied it. And here, Finally, that argument has sort of um, been buried effectively. But, you know, things have moved on. Um, yeah. we, we, we've moved on from that. And um, we're now in a situation where uh, the government's funding a, a recruitment campaign with 20,000 extra police. You know, the, the landscape of, of policing, the landscape of, of, ho of the Home Office has changed, you know, politically. Um, and so... You know, I don't think it probably matters as much yeah. now as it might have done three years ago. So, so just um, leaving that for a moment, the former deputy commissioner of the Met, Craig Mackay, was commissioned to do a review into serious and organised crime in the UK. And um, anyway, the long and the short of it is that that uh, an executive summary only of that document has been re released. What's your what's your take on that? Well, I think it's. Um, it's a selective and partial release of a document um, which hints, if I remember rightly, um, because it came out, I think, a couple of months ago, finally, uh, which hints at, um, you know, lack of resources um, and serious organised crime and so on being stretched. And I am sure that in the full report, it goes into great detail about why that is the case and perhaps presents examples of that. And that's you know, something that would be very embarrassing for the government. Yeah. So they've released a, a summary version. Um, and if I'm right, they kind of, you know, smuggled it out on a very busy news day when it wasn't going to get very much attention. It wasn't yeah. going to be picked up very much. But that that is, that's a tactic that's deployed um, by all governments, uh, Conservative and Labour, yeah. you know, managing the, the release of difficult information mm. so as to avoid um, getting much publicity yeah. for it. So I suppose my only come back to you, I mean, whilst I agree that, uh, that the names have changed at the Home Office and that, and that the resourcing position for the police is looking a lot, well, I'll say a lot better, it's, it's looking better, isn't it, in terms of the recruitment numbers, you know, there's still, it would appear to be a deep reluctance there to, to, to deal with politically inconvenient materials such as that, such as the, the Craig Mackay document. But if I can just if I can just sort of move on to the kind of journalism, your view as a journalist. So um, for those in policing, and I know that 
everyone in policing has always had a very uneasy relationship with journalists, haven't we? And uh, but it feels, and again, I, I may be just getting the wrong end of the stick here, but I definitely, when I speak to colleagues, ex-colleagues, um, there definitely is a sense at the moment that the police are very, very much in the firing line for um, for journalism. And I know that to talk about in the same way that you sort of slightly gently challenged me on my use of the police. It's not, it's pretty unhelpful to talk about the police, isn't it? And equally, it's probably not very helpful to talk about journalists because that's a massive profession and covers a multitude of different kind of shades and colors of journalism. But, but as a collective, generally speaking, there is definitely a sense that the police are getting a very unfair uh, sort of treatment at the hands of journalists generally at the moment. Again, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? The the, um, the coverage to the police, uh, the coverage of policing matters um, is always going to be tricky um, because I, and, and it's the same for any profession, any organisation. As journalists, we are there to highlight things that are out of the ordinary, things that are unusual, things that are of concern, um, things where you, um, you know, where there's alleged wrongdoing. Mm. We're not there to report on the fact that, you know, today in, in Sussex Police, wherever it is, you know, thousands of officers went about their duty, had hundreds of interactions with members of the public, mm. caught a few criminals, processed people in the custody suite, and there were no real issues. Yeah. We're not there to report that. Mm. That's what you do. That's your job. We mm. don't report on doctors um, carrying out operations every mm. single day of the week, uh, doing mm. the best they can without things going massively wrong or mm. patients dying when they shouldn't die. Mm. We don't report that. Mm. We do report when there's been a terribly bungled operation because the surgeon, you know, didn't do their job properly. Mm. Um, or you know had to wait on a trolley for four hours before and yeah. they yeah. and they died. So I think I I think you have to put it in that context. I think police officers have to understand, you know, what we are there to do in the media. We're there to report on the unusual, the things that are concerning, things that are alarming. We all are also there to report clearly on amazing acts of bravery. Have you seen a lot of coverage? given to the uh, two members of the public who, who, mm. who jumped into the River Thames um, to save a woman who'd um, jumped or fallen off London Bridge and one of the men sadly died, the other one survived. There's been a lot of coverage about that. That's, that's a tale of bravery, extraordinary. And, and the media do report those stories as well about mm. amazing acts of bravery in the police. So I think you have to see it in that context. Yeah. And I think there's a slight lack of understanding about that. I think we have had a rash of cases recently, and some of them are before the courts, and so I'm not gonna even go there, mm. um, which have raised concerns about policing mm. and the conduct of individual police officers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that happens, where you just mm. get a spate of cases that all, all come up at once. Um, I think we've also had unusual circumstance over the past 12 months where we've had a pandemic and the, and the police have been in the, you know, in the spotlight about how, how they deal with that. And last year we had the, um, 
the Black Lives Matter uh, protests as well. Um, so all those things have created some unusual circumstances. Not the you know not the police's fault that they had to deal with changing coronavirus regulations you know day by day and and, and all the rest of it. People protesting when they shouldn't even be out protesting and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, I think we're in slightly unusual territory at the moment. Um, but you are always going to get every week cases of wrongdoing, cases that are before the Independent Office of Police Conduct highlighted. Mm. Um, I, I do have a concern that, that together with social media picking stuff up and, you know, images or bits of footage taken by the public going viral, I do have a concern that there is a distorted picture being presented mm. of what police officers do and policing uh, in general. I, I do have that concern. I would not ever want that concern to stop the media reporting on the most terrible cases yeah. of police wrongdoing or misconduct. But we, you know, in the same way that you know how it sometimes is when there's been a dreadful murder. Mm. Um, you then get another one two days later, another one, and suddenly it becomes this kind of panic mm. uh, about, um, you know, the, the streets aren't safe and so on, uh, when actually, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, the murder rate hasn't changed uh, considerably. So in that same way, yes, there's a danger that we can give a distorted picture. But I think, I think also, and we should be aware of that in the media, but also I think police service needs to just take a step back and understand what our job is to do. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't fundamentally disagree with anything you've, you've just said there. I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's your part of your role, uh, not you personally, I think the, the profession to, to hold uh, public servants to account, particularly if they're behaving badly. Um, I, suppose, I suppose my just general concern, and I think you sort of started to, touch on it towards the end of that was was that when you combine and what appears to feel like a rather negative a per perpetually negative media narrative around policing when you combine that and or overlay it with what has become um uh the misuse of social media and online um shaming for want of a better word of police officers so i don't know if you've seen if you haven't i urge you to have a look at it look at the youtube channel called auditing britain where where you've got individuals who are self-appointed uh arbiters of uh the, the the actions and behavior of public servants and it's almost exclusively police and many of these videos have been watched many many hundreds of thousands of times and many of the comments on youtube are extremely uh abusive towards the police some of them deeply disturbing actually, uh, particularly towards female officers making some very abusive, sexually explicit, um, you know, uh, abusive comments. So I just think when you, when you bring all of that together, you're in real danger of failing to recognize that police officers are human beings who nobody, who very few of them, a tiny, tiny percentage, the overwhelming majority of them start their day with the intention of going out and doing a good job and and sometimes and, and increasingly it seems that there's a real appetite to try and misrepresent what they do you know in a moment of very chaotic you know activity 
and then portray it in a very negative way. And then, as I say, when you add into that, that sort of toxic social media where, where police officers are just being basically shamed online. There's no other word for it. So uh, I'm going to ask a question now after that um, monologue. Do you think there is uh, an argument for saying that the videoing, not just of police officers, but of any public servants, so it could be doctors, it could be teachers, it could be anyone, um, is there an argument for saying that that needs to be in some way regulated? Because um, there's a big, big difference between filming a police officer abusing someone on the street, uh, uh, sort of a George Floyd kind of scenario, and, and just deliberately going out and trying to goad them into some sort of reaction, which will at worst lose them their job. Goodness me, Ian, I think it would be so hard to regulate that. Um, really hard to stop people in, in a public arena filming something and then or, or, stop, or, or putting it onto social media. I mean, yeah. it's up to the it's up to look, it's it, it's up to the social media platforms and you know the big ones. Um, to moderate the content and control the content. Um, they, they have some rules in place, they do that, you know, to, to some effect, but it would be incredibly difficult to do that um, unless there's a possibility of an offence being committed. Yeah. Um, you're talking about incitement. So you, you, you put a clip which looks like, you know, a police officer for no reason is beating someone up uh, or verbally abusing someone, it looks absolutely dreadful. Actually, and it's put on social media, and suddenly it's you know inciting inciting this hatred towards the police, and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so on. Actually, it may simply be a very small fragment of a much bigger picture, which is, which seen in context, tells a completely different story. I think mm. it's so. I think I just don't see how you, that could be regulated. Mm. I think I think the message that the police have to get across somehow is. You know, when you see these these clips and so on, you're you're just seeing a partial view, a, a small picture. Don't you know, don't rely on that. You know, don't rely. And somehow that message has to, has to get across so people understand what they're seeing. You know, rely on you know rely on trusted media. Hopefully, there are some trusted media. I, um, I, I mean, I, I remember you know at the BBC. You know, this is one of a really difficult area hmm. um, for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, suddenly something's gone viral on social media. There's a clip of, you know, someone, um, uh, you know, a, a suspect um, being manhandled by police or, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and it looks terrible. And, you know, you're coming under pressure to report on it, mm. to put it on, on BBC website and to say something about it and so on. Um, and it's really, really hard. You've got to verify that the image, that the footage is genuine and is recent. Sometimes people post stuff that's from five years ago, you know, just because they want to get a reaction. Mm. Um, and, and, and then you're not seeing all of it. You're only seeing a partial bit. You don't know what happened before. You don't know what happened afterwards. You don't know what else was going on that the camera didn't record. Yeah. It's, it, it was one of the most tricky areas. Um, and, and, and somehow I think the, the police... I don't think regulation is the way that they somehow have to try and get a message across. You're only seeing a snapshot, you know, yeah. rely, think, on, um, rely on the responsible media. If you look at, I think half the problem is the reason why it's so important. I think I think we can all agree on this is that, is that 
for very good legal reasons, the police are very restricted in terms of what they can say, particularly following something like a fatal shooting. So if you look at the, the Mark Duggan scenario back in 2011, that then went on to sort of uh, act as the catalyst for uh, wide scale rioting across major cities across the UK, costing many, many hundreds of millions of pounds worth of damage, um, you know, and, and serious injuries on, on both to police and to other members of the public, etc. Um, and the problem there is that I'm not, I'm not I'm, by the way, I'm not sort of an authority on that particular scenario. I'm just using that as an example, is that because the police are unable to actually say, listen, this is, this is what we find. This is what, this is how it happened. So, um, you know, to try and kind of quell um, that sort of very um, violent reaction. So I think we're always on the back foot. Well, I think that, I mean, look, that those situations are really difficult um, and particularly when they're in areas um, of the country where there's a history of mistrust in the police um, and certainly that particular shooting which happened in Tottenham that's certainly the case um, but there was some wrong information put out um, I believe by the IOPC uh, in that case um, which contributed to um, to the sort of the anger and so on and there were a number of different factors but in terms of the police in terms of what can be put out after an incident like that. I think things have developed for the better since then. I've noticed that in some recent police shootings, for example, uh, you know, the IOPC together with the police have been able to put out some basic uncontested facts. Um, you know, a non-issue police firearm was found. Um, you know, how many gunshot wounds, have, you know, things like that, the things that are, are basically incontrovertible facts, just to, to build up a picture and try and give potentially some greater clarity to the situation rather than it just sort of appearing to be a random police shooting, yeah. let's say. Yeah. So I think things have improved a bit, but I mean, on that specific one, there were a number of different factors that led to uh, the disorder and, and the sort of wrong information being put out was just one of them, but there were a number of different things that, that happened. Okay. So um, I'm conscious of your time. I appreciate you're, you're on a schedule, aren't you? Just one, just one final point. I appreciate you could probably write several PhD theses on this question. So, you know, I apologize if I'm putting you in a difficult position, but one of the areas I'm particularly interested in, um, as again, the officers uh, who work, who's worked in these sort of parts of the country is, how do you square the circle between this view that the use of stop and search is being used disproportionately against young black men and I think the statistics clearly, you know, the numbers, we're talking the numbers here, I don't think there's any debate at all that, that it is being used disproportionately in terms of the numbers. But then how do you then help prevent young black men from dying, uh, who, according to Professor Larry Sherman of Cambridge University, are between I think, the ages of 16 and 21, I think, um, 24 times more likely to be murdered than young white men of the same age. So. Um, how do you how do you square that circle? I think that's probably the biggest challenge for uh, for police in our big cities. Uh, that that issue, um, it's all related to trust in the police from black communities, 
and Martin Hewitt, head of the National Police Chiefs Council, has gone on a record to say that there's a deficit of trust there. It's, it goes to that. It goes to what we do about stop and search. It goes to the fact that uh, young black men, black teenagers, teenage boys are more likely to be both the victims and perpetrators of, of uh, certain types of violent crime. Um, it's it's, it's a real difficult. I'm not. I'm not expecting to answer that one. question, Danny, because I, <laughs> I asked. I interviewed uh, Professor Tom Lewis from uh, the. Um, uh, he's a human rights um, lawyer from uh, Nottingham University, Nottingham Trent University, as he corrected me yesterday, and I asked him the same question, and he he said, uh, you know, it is fantastically complex, and that is my issue. That's my issue with the media sometimes, and that's my certainly my issue with activists who want to oversimplify a fantastically complex issue. Yeah, no, you, look, you're absolutely right, because as, as a journalist writing a headline, writing a story, when the latest figures come out about stop and search, you automatically go for, oh, right, look, you know, black, black people are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than, than white people. Uh, the figure hasn't changed or it's got worse. You write the story. Um, and of course, there are nuances in that. It, there's no doubt that there is disproportionality. Does that equal discrimination? Question mark. The two aren't the same. And I think there is a lack of or necessarily the same. And I think there is a lack of clarity about that um, in the media. And I don't think the police and other and political leaders have been bold enough to sort of try and articulate that. And in fact, that much derided racial uh, disparities report uh, that came out a month or so ago, I, I, I'm not getting into the wider report because I didn't read it, but I did read the section on criminal justice and policing, and I thought it was a very, very good section um, and made some very good points about stop and search and about, you know, the wider issues um, that are leading to um, black people in particular uh, being caught up in the criminal justice system. It's not necessarily that they're being targeted by police, mm. being discriminated against, but because of social status, because of historical factors, um, because of where they live, because of poverty, yeah. etc. A number of different reasons um, they end up more likely to be victims mm. and perpetrators of certain types of violent crime. And you know, that, that is certainly a contributing factor to why they're more likely to be stopped and searched, but that does not let the police off the hook mm. in terms of looking at their processes and pra practices and their unconscious biases that may lead them to stop and search uh, young black people when they don't have to. I, a very, very instructive moment for me and a producer came when we were doing some filming with uh, one of the violent suppression units, violent crime task force uh, in South London, just before lockdown last year. And we were out with them for a couple of hours um, and virtually everyone they stopped and searched or virtually every vehicle stop, I think possibly every vehicle stop, every stop and search was of uh, a young black person. Hmm. Um, and at the end of it all, we both said to each other, what has that really achieved? What has that really achieved other than really pissing off mm. uh, a lot of young black men, black yeah. kids, yeah. Who, who, who's that encounter with the police was not a happy one and was probably not the first. It's probably mm. likely to be multiple similar encounters. Yeah. Yeah. And we just 
You know, we want the police to be on the streets. Mm. We want there to be a visible presence. We want to feel safer. We want to feel that, you know, we're not likely to be mugged or robbed or, you know, the victim of a crime on the streets. But at the same time, is is that the right approach? I mean, I you know, that's that's what I grapple with. But it, yeah. it, that's when it came home to me. Danny, that was that was fantastic. And I'm sorry to drop that on you right at the very end of the interview, because it's a bit of a, a, a crippler, isn't it? Whichever way you look at it. Um, uh, and, I'm, you know, there's no one there's no one has worked harder uh, to stop young men from killing each other than I did in the last certainly the last few years of my service when I was very much in the thick of it in the West Midlands Police. Um, so, um, but listen, I appreciate you're on a schedule. Can I just say thanks? Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I find it ever so interesting. And um, I hope that I can repay the compliment by buying you a beer at some point uh, when all of this nonsense. Very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And listen, my friend, thank you ever so much. And thanks, Ian. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, I hope to catch it's up with pleasure. you face to face at some point. Yeah. You take care. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. So there you go, the very, very experienced journalist Danny Shaw talking about his uh, role working for the BBC and his thoughts on policing. But I certainly find that interview fascinating and there was a couple of sort of key takeaways from me from that. So the first one is probably the point that the police get hauled over the coals regularly by government uh, around all sorts of different things and yet the Home Office thought it was acceptable to twist and turn and try and cover up, for want of a better word, the fact that their own internal analysts had identified a link between serious violence in the UK and the reduction of police numbers. That was obviously politically inconvenient for them to have to admit that. And whilst Danny said, you know, we've kind of moved on and the people have changed and Yes, we have moved on and the people have changed. But what I'd say is tell that to the people who lost sons, brothers, fathers, cousins to knife crime and gun crime during that period. Yes, politics has moved on and the people in the Home Office have changed. But many people suffered uh, at the hands of serious violence during that period of time. So that would be the first point I'd make. The second point I'd make is that whilst, yes, the people have changed, there is clearly still a willingness to hide the truth around serious crime on the part of the Home Office, around the Craig Mackay review of serious and organised crime. The very fact that that review was commissioned back in 2019 and concluded in 2020 You'll find on the gov.uk website that that report, and I'll quote from that website, which is, uh, Sir Craig will deliver the report to Brandon Lewis, Minister for Security, in spring 2020. And then, lo and behold, it's over a year before that report is actually released. And even then, the only part of the report that was released was the executive summary. So make of that what you will. 
my own interpretation of that is that clearly there was stuff in that report that was again politically inconvenient for this government and on that basis they just decided not to publish it. And I suppose the final point I would make from the interview with Danny was that when you put these incredibly difficult dilemmas to other people who are very knowledgeable, they may not be police officers, but they're very knowledgeable about these areas. So so in this case, I sort of put that dilemma around how do we stem the f- flood of murders of young, predominantly black men in the inner cities? How do we square that circle around, you know, the use of stop and search, uh, wanting to avoid the label of being institutionally racist or using the power in a uh, discriminatory way? How do you try and do that whilst at the same time preventing murders? You know, surprise, surprise, they don't have any idea of that really either. You know, and I put the same question to Professor Tom Lewis, who's a constitutional lawyer and an expert on human rights, and, and, and he too was completely flummoxed about how we do that. So, uh, I, I actually weirdly take some comfort from that in the sense that, you know, we're all kind of struggling to kind of try and solve these incredibly complex problems. Um, my, my friend uh, used this analogy the other day, which I thought was really helpful. It's like in the film Gladiator, you've got the gladiators in the ring and you've got these baying, this baying crowd who are just mocking and laughing at them um, when when the gladiators are sort of almost fighting for their lives. And and whilst that's a slightly dramatic analogy, that's kind of how it feels sometimes to be in the police, where, where the police are desperately trying to, to get on top of these incredibly complex problems playing out on in real time on the streets. And it feels like so many people are up in the public gallery just throwing rotten tomatoes at them and laughing and mocking but they don't actually come up with any better idea. So, anyway, get off my soapbox now. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I'd be really grateful if you can go on the Apple Podcasts uh, app and perhaps consider rating and reviewing. Now, the reviewing bit is really important because it gives me a bit of an idea of what you like and what you don't like. What would you like more of? What would you like less of? And so if, if there's stuff here that you really like, then please tell me about it because it's a bit of a weird one doing these podcasts. You you don't really have that interactive thing with your audience. And the only way you can get that is through the reviews. So if you could do that, I'd be super grateful. All right, then. You take care. Have a good week. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye. <laughs>